0: Good morning, how are we? If you have a Bible, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to start at verse 5. I'm going to read uh, Ephesians. Uh, We've been in a series in Ephesians, so if you want to turn there, I'm going to read uh, our text and I'm going to pray and then we'll jump into the sermon uh, this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one around you in your chair. Um, I think it's 978 in your chair Bible. Um, If you have your own Bible, I don't know what page yours is on. Um, but look in the table of contents if you need to, Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 5. And this is going to make you really chipper for the holidays. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And this is the word of God for us this morning. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Lord, we, we come to you and we know the, the primary way in which you speak to us is through your word. And we know it's a living word. It's living. It's active. It's like a double-edged sword. Um, that when it's open, when it's read, when it's preached, it does work on us. Um, it goes after our souls, our hearts, our desires, our inclinations. And so we just pray now, Father, by the Holy Spirit, that you would have your way with us, um, that you would come and meet us, uh, that you would teach us, that you would guide us, God, um, that you would illuminate us to, to hear and receive what you want to say to us. And then, Lord, just as, as the scriptures say, help us not just hear your word um, and, and deceive ourselves, but also to, to do what it says. Um, So help us now, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So I don't know when it began. Um, At a young age, I I became uh, fascinated with why people do what they they do. And, And I don't know if that was... God's sense of humor later calling me into to ministry and having the opportunity to be with people and counsel people and kind of go like, why, why are you doing that? Like, that's going to lead nowhere good. Um, and then also kind of dealing with my own inclinations, my own sin, my own evil, my own, my own heart, that I want to do good, I want to live a good life, and yet often I see this inconsistency within me. Like, I know cognitively I should do this, but then over here it's just like, you know, binging Netflix for nine hours, it just seems like a good use of my time right now. Um, And so whatever it is, I just became kind of obsessed and fascinated with with the heart and and desires and action and and, and the inconsistencies um, of those things. And and around uh, this time, a few years back, I I picked up this book by Daniel Pink. Uh, He wrote a book called Drive. It's, It's Drive, and then the subtitle is The Surprising Truth of What Motivates Us. And it's an interesting book. It's about work. Um, And and why people do what they do and how to how to create a culture in your your workplace that that motivates people to to be better employees and and get the job done. And and what he talked about in that book was what he called the carrot and stick syndrome, which is basically um, if we give people enough money, they'll be good employees. If we give them enough benefits, they'll work really hard. But what he did in his study um, was he realized that none of those things actually motivate people. That no amount of blessing, material blessing, no amount of money will motivate us to be good employees, right? they you've even seen this in the sports world, the guy or gal who gets the big contract and then it seems like they're just kind of mailing it in after a while. It's like, well, I got $100 million. Why do I need to work out anymore or practice, right? And so... It's an interesting thought to think what really motivates us, and intrinsically, it's usually not material things. It's usually not money. I mean, you can have all the money in the world, and then what? You just want more, right? So so what is that? And as I was reading that book, I just thought, well, duh, of course not, because we're made in the image of God. That, that all of us are designed and wired and made for God, but we're also designed and wired to, to live for something bigger than ourselves. And we know in our honest moments that those material things, money things, whatever it is, just don't seem to satisfy, that we want to do work that matters, right? We want to have an impact. Like, I don't think all day long about my paycheck. Well, I'm a pastor, so, you know, I, and it's not very much, but I mean, it's, 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 you know, this is why I do it. As I counsel you, I'm just thinking about the bling-bling. Like, that doesn't motivate me. But it's saying, this work that I'm doing, does it, does it matter? As you teach kids, as you raise kids, as, you, you know, as you're an engineer, as you're a business owner, whatever your, your field of work is, we know deep down that that doesn't really motivate us. Now, as we move into Ephesians this morning, as we looked at for, for a few weeks, we looked at the first three chapters of Ephesians, and we said, this is really the content of the gospel. This is what we believe about Christ, what he's done, how he's redeemed us, how he's come and made us his own, how he's adopted us in the family, how he's he's forgiven us of our our sins. And and then when we get to chapter 4 in the letter of Ephesians, now it's the gospel on the ground. How do we live our lives in light of all that Christ has done? And it's that indicative, who we are, the gift, and then it's the imperative, the command. Now, go live a life worthy of you, uh, worthy of Christ, excuse me. And so this morning, as we look at these few verses in chapter 5, what Paul is going to do is he's going to look at the motivations of our hearts. He's going to look at ways in which God motivates us to live a life worthy of Him. Now, as we go into these this morning, it's very essential and vital that you remember the first three chapters of Ephesians. Because if you get these reversed, this is a nightmare. This doesn't make any sense, and I'm not going to be motivated to live a life worthy of Jesus unless I understand the first three chapters of Ephesians. That he has redeemed me, that he has restored me, that he's invited me into his family, that he's forgiven me all my sins, that he has made me new in Christ. Now, in light of those things, go live a life worthy of you. If you get these reversed, we're not talking about Christianity anymore. We're talking about every other man-made religion in the universe that says, if I do these things, God will love me. If I do these things, God will bless me. If I pray enough prayers, if I knock on enough doors, if I give enough money, then maybe, just maybe, God will love me. But the gospel is, God has already loved us, that even while we were enemies, Christ died for us. The Advent season, even we were enemies, Jesus sent his only begotten son, the Emmanuel, the God with us to live with us, to redeem us, to restore us, a gift that we didn't deserve. Now, go live a life worthy um, of, of Him. And so this morning, we're going to look at the, the motivations of the heart. And I think that's important because the Scriptures do this all the time. And so, so what does Paul try to motivate us to live a life worthy of Christ? And so there's, there's four kind of moves here this morning. We're, we're, he's going to motivate us by judgment. That's a thing. He's going to motivate us by light and truth. He's going to motivate us by wisdom, and he's going to motivate us by the Holy Spirit. And so first, motivate, motivated by judgment. Now, there's a reason why I broke this text up the way I did, why I did the sermon last week, it stopped at verse 4, and why I'm doing verse 5, is because right before this, as we, if you were here last week, or if you didn't get a chance, you can go listen on podcast, or iTunes, or however the magic happens, and it's floating in the ethernet, um, but uh, but, but last week we talked about putting on these clothes in Christ, that we are new creations in Christ, that we are our new beings, so we're to live a life worthy of Christ because of what he's done. We put on these new clothes, and we put off the old clothes of sin and evil. We put off the old ways of, of living. And, and what Paul did at the end of chapter uh, 4 and, and part of chapter 5 was he gave these examples of what does that new life in Christ look like? And so he talked about Things like anger. And he talked about um, lying and telling the truth. He, he, he talked about forgiveness and kindness and mercy. And then even a uh, couple weeks ago, he talked about unity. Um, but this morning, why I'm picking up in verse 5 is because it shifts to the motivations. Why do we live this way? How do we live this way? How does God motivate us to live this way? And that's what we see in verse, verse 5. So verse 5 says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who, has, who is covetous... That is an adulterer has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. And, and so, what what Paul's doing here is that this is this is judgment, right? This is this is this isn't your clothes that you wear anymore. You are a new creation in Christ. So, sexual immorality has no place with you covetousness. Covetousness is, I want this that isn't mine. I want, you know, as, as Exodus you know, 20 will say, I want my, you know, my neighbor's donkey and my neighbor's wife, and I want all these things that aren't God that, that I believe I need, and if I could have those things, then I'll be satisfied in my soul, and yet God says, well, that's idolatry. That the root of all idolatry, even the root of sexual morality, is covetousness. I want something that I can't have or I shouldn't have in its proper context. And, and, and so, so Paul is saying, hey, if that's who you are, and you're already part of the kingdom of God, you should have no part in that. That, that you will not inherit the kingdom of God. If that's, that's who you are, if that's how you're living, if that's what you're about, if there's no confession of, of sin, if there, there's no repentance, that's the old man, then there's no, no room for you here. Because that's not what the kingdom of God is about. The kingdom of God is not about evil and sin. It's about living lives of goodness and holiness unto God, who's redeemed us and made us Made us new. If you remember in Ephesians chapter two, verse six, Paul says we've already inherited this kingdom. A kingdom in Ephesians two six, he says and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so when we talk about judgment and the, this inheritance of the kingdom, there's there's two ways of looking at this. Is one is we already have it. Ephesians 2, verse 6. You've already been seated in the heavenly place. Christ already rules at the right hand of God. He's already is our king. He's our lord. He's our our master. We already have a place in the kingdom, which is another way of saying in heaven, if you want to use that language. The scriptures use both. But also, there's a kingdom that's coming that has not come yet. Where Christ, when his second coming, Advent, our expectation at Advent is that Christ is coming again. He already came once, but now he's coming again to redeem and restore all things. That when that happens, we'll also be ushered into this fullness of the kingdom. So we get a little taste of it here on earth in our, in our daily lives, but we also know that there's a future full kingdom that is coming. And he's saying that if you're about sexual morality and idolatry and worshiping everything but God, there's no place for you here. Now, Paul in other places motiva- tries to motivate us when we think about sexual morality specifically in 1 Corinthians 6, <clears throat> which I find interesting. In 1 uh, Corinthians 6, <clears throat> verse 12, he says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything sexual morality, idolatry, food, Netflix, whatever. "'Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, "'and God will destroy both, one and the other. "'The body's not meant for sexual morality, "'but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. "'And God raised the Lord, and will also raise us up "'by his power. "'Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? "'Shall I then take the members of Christ "'and make them members of a prostitute?' "'Never. "'Or do you not know that, the, that he who is joined to a prostitute "'becomes one body with her? "'For it is written, the two shall become one flesh. "'But he who is joined to the Lord "'becomes one spirit with him.' Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin is a person commits outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were brought with a price. So glorify God in your body. I love the way even Paul motivates sexual morality in there. He says Christ has redeemed you. This is not your body. It does not belong to you. It belongs to Christ, that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. So why would you join yourself with someone other than your wife or your husband? And he says, here's the problem with, and again, in this context, different context, 1 Corinthians, a little wild church. Um, hopefully that's not a problem in our church, but you know, the, the, there were people that were you know, sleeping with prostitutes. And he says the problem with that is not the act of sex. The problem is you're becoming one, one person, one flesh with them. That's what sex is about. That's what marriage is about. You become one flesh with the other person. So you're giving your soul to them, to someone who's not your wife and not your husband. That's the devastation of sexual morality. It's not just, oh, we have pleasure, we have, we have needs, we have desires. so what does it matter? It's you're actually giving your body and your soul to another person. And that's why people that in, in our hookup culture, and that's why when people, and it doesn't work out, that's why men and women are devastated by that afterwards. Why? Well, one, because it didn't work out, and there's that emotional pain of that, but it's because you gave your soul to someone else. Of course there's going to be pain rooted in that. Right? And so, so Paul has these, these ways of motivating to say, hey, God has redeemed you. This is not your body. It belongs to God. And if it belongs to God and I'm a temple of the Holy Spirit, I want to honor God with my body, right? Should be a hearty amen, right? I don't know. Maybe. But that's not what Paul does, does he, in Ephesians? He motivates with judgment. Now, how in the world is that motivating? <laughs> Isn't that a good question to ask? Right, because when we hear the word judgment, here's what we hear, guilt and shame. Right? The, the way in which I'm going to get people in my church to live a life worthy of Jesus is to guilt and shame them into the kingdom. right? And maybe you've been part of that. I know I see some nods, right? Amen, brother, preach it. Guilt means shaming in the kingdom, right? Like, or scaring your kids, hey, say this prayer. You, know, you don't want to go to hell, it's hot there. That, that doesn't motivate me. But let's think about what judgment is. Judgment really is just about accountability. It's about a standard in which God has set before us. And so he says, hey, there's judgment going to come. And I have these particular standards because I'm after your joy and I want your life to go really well. And if you try to live outside those standards, it's going to go horrifically wrong. And so there's going to be this judgment. We're going to be held accountable to certain ways that that would, would benefit you for the long term now and forever. So it's not guilt and shame, it's a, it's a judgment that holds us accountable that each and every day we, we ask the question, am I living a life worthy of Jesus? Is my life consistent with the new clothes that I wear? Is my life consistent with the new creation that I am, that I say that I, that I am, that, 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 the, the, the confession that I make, is that consistent? And judgment can be a great motivator to that. But here's the problem, is that most of us, when we think about judgment, is we just go, no one can judge me, Right? I'm my own man. I'm my own woman. <laughs> no one has the right to judge me. Well, here's, here's a little gift for you this morning. God is way smarter than you and way wiser than you on your best day. And he's way more loving and patient and kind and merciful than you can ever imagine. So God, your judgments are fine. That you don't even know why you do what you do. That God knows every inclination of your heart. He knows every sin that's in there, the past, present, and future, and yet he still accepts you in Christ because of the cross of Christ. That's a different kind of, hey, yeah, judgment's okay, because I don't even understand me on my best days. I welcome it. Because I want to one day inherit that, that kingdom and be part of that. That if Jesus is my king and he is my Lord, and he is my master, of course I want to listen to what he has to say. Because he always has my best intentions. That doesn't mean it's easy, right? That, that, I mean, that's a weird thing when you become a Christian. All of a sudden you have this conviction over sin. You're like, this, this is lame. Like, I have to like think about how I live my life. I didn't like that before when I was just living it up. Just do whatever I want. But over time, as God transforms you and sanctifies you by his spirit, you go, oh, there's a lot of joy here and a lot of love here, and there's a lot of mercy here, and this is the best way to live my life because I was just making a mess over here. And so judgment is a way to hold us accountable to God's commands and God's standards and God's ways because we are new creations in Christ. Now, you might have caught this in the text, is the problem in the early church, at least when this letter was written, um, is verse 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So a lot of scholars say that there's some Gnostic teaching going on that, that was basically, Gnosticism was, was this kind of form of kind of hyper-spirituality that said, like, the body's bad and all that matters is spirit. And so it really doesn't matter what you do with your body. Um, and, and so this, this teaching is kind of filtering out and very similar to even our day. It, it's just, it doesn't matter what you, you can do. Do whatever you, whatever you feel is your truth. Whatever your emotions tell you, whatever, right? I mean, just fill in the blanks. Just do that, and that's okay. But he he says, if anyone's even saying that, they're saying it doesn't matter. There are no standards. There are no rules. You are the person. If that's who you feel you are, and you think you need to act on those things, you go and, and do that. And I find it really fascinating when it comes to this sexual morality conversation is because we wouldn't do that with anything else in life. If I came to you and said, hey, I just feel like I need to just kill everyone in here you'd go, oh, that's fine. Live your truth, Ryan. Totally fine. If that's what's in your heart and that's the inclinations of your heart, you go for it, buddy. Right? Because it's all about you and it's about your freedoms, right? We wouldn't do that. We don't apply that to anyone. If someone's living a destructive life, you would just say, I mean, how is that loving and kind and gracious? It's not at all. Right? You wouldn't do that to the addict and just go, hey, it's fine. Just drink more beer. It's fine. Just shoot more heroin in your eyeballs. It's totally fine. Live your truth, buddy. Right? But isn't that kind of what we do? Because we don't want to invade and actually speak truth to anyone. But it's God's kindness and God's mercies that he would say, no, there's actually this, this judgment, this standard that we stand before God to say, I want the best for you. I want, I want your joy to be so amazing. And, and I want you to live this holy, godly life. And, and guess what? Holiness and godliness always leads to happiness, by the way. And this garbage that we hear is like, no, God just wants you to be happy. I mean, God just wants you to be holy. Like, so that means you're just a miserable jerk. No. Holiness always leads to joy and happiness. Always. We live in the way God would want us. It's, it's, it's great joy because that's how he designed the universe to work. Like, that's crazy talk. Like, so these Christians just so mad. Just, I'm angry. I'm just living my holy life. Those sinners. Just angry. I'm just like, how is that joy? How is that love? Right? I mean, just like tell your face. I don't think you're doing it right. Okay, I'll stop. but it's important for us as we move to the next one is that we don't go hey yeah the, the, those people out there you know they're not going to inherit the kingdom is judgment begins with the house of god and so it's important for us as believers in Christ and this again this is being addressed to a church is that we take stock of hey how am i living a, a holy life a godly life am i honoring jesus with everything my sexuality? Is there idolatry in my life? Are there things that I'm making uh, God replacements in my life? And you've heard me say this many times, is that most of the God replacements in our lives are good things, by the way. Family, job, hobbies, whatever. They're not, you know, heroin for most of us. And if they are, please come talk to me, get help. We, we, We can help you with that. But but, but for the most part, it's taking this good thing like a family, taking this good thing like a job, and making it an ultimate thing. And so we bow down and we sacrifice to this thing, whatever that thing is. Okay. Motivated by judgment. We're also motivated by light and truth. Light and truth. Notice where, where, where it moves here in verse 8. Uh, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Light. And so, so Paul's going to use this motivator first It's judgment. It says, hey, we're held accountable to these particular standards that if we are kingdom people, if we are new people in Christ, then, then we should live a particular way. But now he's going to motivate us by, by light and truth. And, and what's so fascinating about this, this move that he does is notice what he says about light and truth. He doesn't just say, hey, you used to walk in darkness, in sin, in evil, and now you walk in the light of the gospel, or the light of God's truth. No, notice what he, what he says, actually. Did you catch it? Verse 8. For at one time you were, what's the word? Darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. That, that's a game changer right there. Not, I live. I used to live and walk as sons of disobedience, as the scriptures say, which we all did. Ephesians 2. Walking to the sin nature living that out day and day but now we actually were darkness at our core but now we are light in Christ that he has transformed us from the inside out so it's not just that we we loved darkness and now we love light which is all true by the way but that we are light now that we've been changed, that we are new creatures, that we have new clothes on. So he says, now you are to live a life life of light and and truth. You should love those things. You should love the light, that where there is evil and sin and darkness, we say, no, I don't like that. I don't want to be around that. That's one of the things that happens when you become a Christian, right? Right? I shouldn't love sin anymore. I shouldn't love evil anymore. I should, should love to repent and say, no, I don't like it. I don't like what it does to me. I don't like what it, how it devastates other, other people. And one of the gifts of being a pastor, and it's, it's a painful part of this job, but it's also a gift. It's just to remember time and time again when, when I'm with people, and, and, and even when you're with, with people, it's just say, sin is a, I just want to use a cuss word, because it devastates people's lives. And for years and years, I had no language for that. I didn't know why I was the way I was, why my family was the way they were, why the world was the way it was. But this, this evil that's within, these desires that are so warped, these, you know, as, as Augustine would say, these disordered loves cause all kinds of havoc, don't they? And so when we see that, we go, oh, I long for the day where there's no more sin or death or pain, don't you? Every day. And that's just for my own home. Like, I mean, I'm not even talking you know, wars and everything else and cancer and you name it. I, I just, just every day it's like, God, I want to do the right thing. I, I want to live a life worthy of you. And there's still these just disordered loves that I need changed. I need redeemed. I need transformed. And, and so, so Paul is saying that, that, that one of the ways we're going to be motivated is to, is to seek and walk in light. In, in light, as he defines it here, did you catch it in verse nine? For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Good and right and true. Really hard to define what all that means, but you kind of know it instinctively, don't you? Like, like you know what. Dar- I mean, my kids know what darkness is, right? Like, like, this is just the the physical, you know, universe here, right? When you go out in darkness, just pitch black. I, mean, I remember um, I, I used. Used to camp. I don't like it. I think it's just, it's weird. Um, my dad said, uh, you know, camping is when you go to the, the Hyatt and you don't have a coffee maker. He, he says that's camping. Um, but um, if you don't have the choice, if you don't have to live outdoors, why would you? Like, that's just a weird thing. Um, sorry, that's not the point. But, but you, you go, it's not comfortable, but you go camping. <laughs> And I remember when we'd go camping, and you'd just be in pitch black. And I'm a city guy, so, you know, there's lights everywhere, right? You're just used to street lights and all these things. And you get out in the woods, and it's terrifying, right, for a city guy? Because there's no light. Like, the only light is stars, right? And and so you're just walking in, in, in darkness until you pull out your flashlight. And you illuminate. And isn't it amazing how darkness just flees? And now you can see and see, th- those metaphors in scriptures are, are such a powerful way, I think, of understanding how, how light exposes darkness. That when the light gets up next to the darkness, it's like cockroaches and they just flee and they run away, right? And, and so when, we, when things that are, that are right and true and good and light of God and his commands and his character, you know what those are and you know what the opposite of those things are. Because light always exposes the darkness and that's what, what Paul says is that we're also too expose in verse 12, for it is shameful even to speak of these things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. So when light inches up next to darkness, it gets exposed for what it is. And that's also why when we're living in darkness and walking in darkness and walking in, in sin, is it almost always it gets found out because light comes up next to it and it gets exposed for what it really is. Isn't that an interesting thing? The psalmist talks that way. And When we try to keep our sin inside, our bones literally waste away. There's actually a physical component to it. Maybe you've been there. I've been there. right? You know you've done something horrible. You haven't told anybody. right? You're living with this, this shame and this guilt, and you're literally whittling away from the inside because you know it's not right. But, like, I don't, I don't know, you know, how certain people, and again, I, I'm not a lawyer and, and, and whatever, but I grew up in, um, you know, in L.A. in the 90s, and if you guys remember the L.A. riots and uh, the O.J. Simpson trial, um, I mean, the dude was guilty. Like, we can go on record, that's public record. But he still says he wasn't guilty, right? And sometimes I think about him, I'm mean, not all the time, that's just weird, I don't think about O.J. Simpson, like, before I go to go to bed, I mean, that's just weird and inappropriate. But, um, but, I, but I, think about, I thought about him in, the, in his jail. He finally went to jail, which is hilarious. I'm not hilarious, but um, <laughs> for like s- stealing his own memorabilia. Did you hear about this about 10 years ago? <laughs> He's broke, so he stole his own memorabilia and was like selling it and hawking it and stuff. Um, so he goes to jail not for murder, but he goes for stealing his own junk. But anyway, but, but to think that this guy's guilty and he's sitting in a jail cell, and he's still telling himself, I'm not guilty. Maybe he didn't at that point. I don't know. But literally wasting away from the inside out, that, that light always exposes darkness. And so as God's people, we should be people, because we are light, not darkness anymore. We've been changed from the inside out, that seek what is good and right and true in light of, of God. First, uh, uh, first uh, John, excuse me, couldn't think of what it was, First John one, verse five. This is the message we heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Jesus in the in the Sermon on the Mount you probably remember this. This is actually my, uh, my wedding text. Andy uh, did our wedding and probably remembers this. Um, he might remember it. I don't know. Um, and he's like, geez, he's just really not living that out. Uh, he, might, <laughs> so he needs some help with that. Um, Matthew 5, verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on the hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So if we are light, right, we take the, the top off, right? We don't hide it under, under our bush. We don't, we don't cover it, right? We, 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 we as, as light of the world, as a counterculture of the world, as kingdom people, whatever language you, you want to use, is we let that shine forth for the world. Why? Because it has a converting effect so that people will praise God in heaven by your light. That God has redeemed you and made you a light to the world so that you could actually go and see others come into the light. Now, where do I get that? Well, actually, it's Ephesians is talking that way. Did you you catch it? I know you did. You're smart people. Verse 14, For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. It's a quote from, from Isaiah 60 and some other psalms. He's saying actually what happens in conversion is we become light and actually we show the world what God is like. That Christ's light shines through us onto other people. And this idea of deadness and coming awake is what happens when we become Christians, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but now we are alive in Christ, Ephesians 2, right? And so by our light and by seeking what is right and what is true and what is good, and as we expose that darkness, there's an opportunity for us to see others come into the light. that's what the church is for. It's to be a light, a city on a hill. And to shine forth all that is good and right and true and how the universe works in light of God and his kingdom. So we're motivated by by light. So are we seeking what is right and true? Are we asking that question on a daily basis? Am I seeking what is right and good and true? And, And do I see places where I'm slipping into the darkness but to say, those aren't the clothes I wear anymore that I put on new clothes in Christ. Okay, so we're motivated by judgment, we're motivated by truth and light, but we're also motivated by wisdom. But it's a particular kind of wisdom. Verse 15, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Okay, so there's this, this particular, particular wisdom. He says there's wise and unwise people. There's people that are, that, that are foolish and those people that aren't foolish. And he says, so, so, so we need to look carefully how we walk. And actually, by definition, that's the mark of a wise person. <laughs> that if you never look at your life and go, am I walking inconsistently with what I confess and what I believe? Then you're by definition not wise. Because we all have blind spots, and that's why we gather as a church, that's why we have a DNA groups and city groups and things like that, is to say, there's a wisdom in saying, I'm not going to walk alone and go, yeah, I'm doing fine. Yeah, everybody's spiritual and mature when you walk alone. That's why they call them blind spots. Right? Because you're blind. And you don't want to see them, right? Because, because again, it's not just me and you. Know, I'm my own island. And I just do what I, I want to do. As you you walk in community with other people, and to say that, hey, are there things in my life that are inconsistent with what I confess in in Christ? There's a, there's a wisdom there. There's a there, there's a way of walking, and I think there's just a some some built-in practical things in verse 15. Is just just carefully looking at how we walk, and that walk is really just about a relationship with God. Just a metaphor using the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's our relationship with God, how we walk with God or not. But notice how he gets very specific. Like, what does that look like? Well, one is, he talks about time. How do we use our time? Are we wise with our, our time? N- notice that in, um, in verse uh, six, uh, 16. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. In and, and the Greek, it's, it's redeeming the time. It's, it's, it's redeeming back the time. So every human has the same amount of time they're given every single day, 24 hours, right? Can't add more, can't take away more. It's, we're all given the same amount of time. And so, so what Paul is saying, hey, there's a wisdom here to say, well, in all that time that you've given, been given, how are you going to use it because the days are evil? Are you going to lose it, use it for good, what is right and what is true? Are you going to walk in the light? Or are you going to waste it on frivolous things? Are you going to buy back that time? I guess it's we use that phrase. Uh, just I was just wasting some time. I don't think we should ever waste time. Like that shouldn't be a thing in our lives. Like I'm not trying to be you know weird and legalistic or whatever. But I mean, you're sitting and getting your oil changed, and you're just like I was just wasting time, you know, waiting for my oil to, to be changed or whatever. But how could we redeem all even that time? To so, say yeah, I could scroll Facebook for an absorbent amount of time and get lost in the abyss and hate myself later. Or, I could send a text to my wife. Hey, thinking of you. Love you. Thanks for being my wife. Or, I could send a note to someone in the church. Hey, praying for you. This is my universal sign for texting. (laughs) Thumbs, I don't know. I could take a moment just to quietly pray could give someone a call I haven't talked to in a long time. And again, I'm not saying this is what you have to do, but the idea is there, right? The wisdom there is just, I can waste a lot of time doing things that just don't matter, that does doesn't does advance the kingdom of God or make Jesus look great in my life. And so I need to redeem those moments that I have. And it's going to look a million different ways. And again, it's not just religious, it's not just, why well, I should read my Bible and pray. Yeah, I can include that. But it can also mean laying on the ground with your kids and playing a board game. Paying attention to them and asking them questions. Being present to your loved ones, to your neighbors, whatever it is. Because the days are evil, so how are we going to use that to do good? That's what a wise person does. I hate wasting time, honestly. it's something, And it probably gets to a point of like unhealthiness. We're such a like productivity, you know, crazy culture. we got to be produ- productive, everything. That's not what we're even talking about here. But to say, these little cracks of life that I have, how do I use them? for the glory of, of God that he's, he's given me. Because Christians should see time differently, that it all belongs to God. I remember years ago reading uh, Jonathan Edwards' resolutions. If you remember, when he was a young man, he was an American uh, theologian and pastor and philosopher, and he wrote out these resolutions when he was a, a young man. I don't remember how many there were exactly, um, but number five always struck me, and he, it says this, Resolved never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it the most profitable way I possibly like, there's no specifics there. That's just saying, I'm going to be a wise person. I'm going to redeem the time and say, I'm going to use this time that God's afforded to me to make it as profitable as possible. And I don't know what that's going to look like for you. It's going to look different for, for me, but I think there's some wisdom there. Um, I also, I read this week um, that uh, you probably heard that George, George uh, Bush Sr. died, uh, former president. Um, and uh, he was 94 years old. And you know all these stories come out. He, he was, seemed like a pretty, pretty good guy. And, um, and one of the things that he did was uh, before he became uh, before he was, he was a one-term president um, and before he, uh, Clinton was going to take office, he wrote a handwritten note to Clinton. And, uh, and they actually had the note online. You can read it. It's pretty, pretty fascinating. It's just very kind and very, you know, and again, Republican, Democrat, holy cow. I mean, in our day, it seems like everyone just gets along really well. Um, <laughs> but he writes this note, and at the end, this really struck me. It said, I want you to know... I'm rooting for you big time. I mean, just, that's how our political climate is today. Um, (laughs) Redeeming the time. Now, what I learned is most presidents do that. But then as you follow his life a little bit more, as you realize he did this with everybody. Handwritten notes. Hey, I'm thinking of you. I just want to encourage you. And I just go, the time, and again, different day, different time, it's easy. I think sometimes it's, we, we kind of take the easy route. Email's fine. But I, I can guarantee you, if you get a letter in the mail, you open it. Like a handwritten letter. Like you don't just trash it, unless it's bills. But, um, <laughs> or junk mail. But someone that's taken the time to actually write down and say, hey, I'm just thinking of you, right? You keep those probably in a file somewhere. Email, okay, Hey, thanks. Text, okay, that's great. But there's just something about that. How can we redeem the time to say, hey, I'm, I'm thinking of you. I'm rooting for you. I'm praying for you. So use of time, but also, Paul says, also discerning the will of God. Now, again, big, huge topic here. But there's there's two kinds of wills of God. And so one will of God is, is really just his general will. It's what he desires for the whole universe, what he desires for us, his ways, his commands, etc. Um, and, and those are you know, big things, the things that are revealed to us in Scripture that are really clear. You know, Ephesians 1, we spent some time there. You know, even as he chose us, uh, Ephesians 1.4, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will you go down to verse 11, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So, so God's general will is that, we would, uh, that he would redeem a people for his name, he would adopt us into his family, he would forgive us of all our sins, and then he would say, hey, now go live a life worthy of me, go live a holy and blameless life. That's God's will for every Christian, there's no question on that. And obviously as we look at scripture, how to, how to follow God, how to live for God, the commands that he's given us in light of those things, of course. That's, that's the big, obvious things, right? But the particular will of God, let me help you guys this morning. I know we've got some young folks like, hey, someday I'd love to be married, or I'd love to, you know, maybe I'd, God's called me to do this job. The scriptures give you no inkling of who you're supposed to marry, there's no verse in there. Uh, what job you should take. Oh, yeah. Yep, yep, Cerner. That's it. Got it. <laughs> Psalm 23, verse 9. Should I go to seminary? Should I not? Am I supposed to be a pastor? Am I not right? How many kids should I have or or not right? I, I just want to help you guys this morning. That's not in the Bible. It's not. But there is wisdom. There is ways in which we can look at the scriptures and glean and say, okay, it is good that we be married and married to one person, man and woman, of course. It's good that we have children if we're able. Like to have children doesn't say how many, right? I mean, it's good that we work. It doesn't tell me, right, where, where I should work or, you know, I'm probably not something that's sinful, right? And selling out my soul. Some good parameters there. But we also have the church and we have wise counsel that we can ask people and say, hey, hey, when you look at my life and you see my gifting and you, you see my abilities, like where would you see me working or doing or with my life, right? Whatever it is. We have, we have the Holy Spirit that can lead and guide us as, as well. And so that's what I'm talking about, the, the particular will of God. It's not as easy to, to discern. But we also know that God is with us, and that we can trust his leading. That, that I think we live in this weird, like, there's three doors, and if I pick the wrong door, my life's going to be ruined. Right? Door number one. Remember those game shows? Door number one, number two, or number three, right? And there's, like, you know, door three just has, like, a lump of coal, and door one has, like, a million dollars. You're like, what if I just, if I don't pick the right one? If you have a robust belief that the Father of heaven and earth is your Father, that He loves you and that He's with you and the Holy Spirit is with you, don't freak out about door one, two, and three. Now, if it's inconsistent with His will, if it's sin, of course, it's going to go horribly wrong for you. How do I know God wanted me to marry Christie? Because I did. I mean, there was no lights from heaven. There was no, you know... An angel didn't come down in my bedroom and say, hey, Christy's the one, soulmate, bing, done. I thought she was hot. <laughs> she loved the Lord. What else do we need here? I mean, she didn't seem to think the same things of me, but it took a lot of um, stalking on my part. But that's the will of God, too. Sometimes you just got to course them into the kingdom, I mean that's just how it is. But wise people are always trying to discern the will of God. His general will. Am I making much of you? Am I, am I living a life worthy of you? And also the particulars. God, are you calling me to something? Maybe leading me to, to something? What are those, those things? But it's just constantly living our lives before God as an open book. Say, here I am, God. I want to know what you want. And, and that's why Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew 6. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We need to keep that prayer on our lips constantly, because I think it's, my will be done, but yeah, if you want to come along, but to really believe that God is going to lead us where he needs us to be, whether even, even in hard seasons. Like, there's times I, I, um, I, you've heard part of our story, but we, we, we ended up, I wanted to, I felt God was going to lead us to plant a church after seminary, and we ended up going to Colorado for a few years, and um, helping pastor church there, and, and and I always thought like, did I not? Did I pick the wrong door, God? Because it was also there that we lost our our second daughter, and I, I just go like, well, if we didn't go there, maybe that wouldn't have happened. But you can't live like that. That through that, even through the darkest nights of the soul, I can say it ten years later is, thank you, God. I don't think I would be the person that I am. I'm not to say I'm perfect by any means, but, but what you did through that and through my wife and through my family, you, you changed everything for us in a very good way. I, of course, we'd love to have our daughter. <laughs> he's blessed us with some other crazy kids, but I like them too. <laughs> but, he, but he's created in me just like life is a gift, and nothing's owed to me. And he revealed some idolatry in me that just think, "Hey God, I, I gave you, I, I'm serving you, I'm a pastor for crying out loud. How could this happen?" And he had to do some work on me in that too. So it's not always easy, but God always is working for the good of those who love them, and good includes even the hard days and the suffering. So lastly, motivated by the Holy Spirit. Motivated by the Holy Spirit. So we're motivated by judgment. There's an accountability that we want to live a life worthy of God, that we are. Jesus is our king, that there's an inheritance coming. Are we living in consistency in that? We're motivated um, by light. Are we walking in light or darkness? And we're also motivated by wisdom, how we use our time and how we discern the will of God. And then lastly, motivated by the Holy Spirit. We could spend a, a lot of time on this, but we won't. We're all sealed by the Holy Spirit. That's what we learned in Ephesians 1.13. Um, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Remember, every Christian is a charismatic. If you're a believer in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit of God living in you. Romans will tell you if you don't, then you're not a believer. It's part of the package deal. But what's fascinating about, our, about, about Ephesians in verse 18, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled, that's a command, with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So, so classic text, those that want to argue against, you know, do we, should we have alcohol or not? Um, that's not really what this text is about, but it is saying that we shouldn't get drunk on, the, on wine, because what does is, what is drunkenness do? I mean, they've showed science to this. It brings down our, 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 our ability. It actually ma- it's actually kind of a depressive. So it brings us down, right? We can't function. We can't be as clear. And that's why it says drunkenness. Again, too much of it, you're going to be out of control, right? It's going to lead to debauchery, right? I mean, how many people have the story, I drank too much and now I have a child with someone I didn't want to have a child with, right? I drank too much and I, I got a DUI. I ran someone over, right? I mean, there's, there's crazies, right? Because you get out of control, right? You, you lose a course of your functions, right? And we know, we know alcoholism goes deep. We know there's, there can be addiction and we know there can be all kinds of, of issues with that. But he's, he's comparing a life of drunkenness, but a life filled with the Spirit. Because what does the Spirit do? Well, according to Galatians 5, the Spirit gives you self control love, joy, peace, all other things too. But one of those is self-control. So, so, so don't, don't get out of control and drink too much and, and, and lose control of your faculties, and it's going to bring you down anyways, but rather live a life that you're alive in Christ, that you're self-controlled, that you can live a life worthy of God, that you can be present with God, you can be present with each other. Don't let any substance or anything get into your life that you lose control on any level. Instead, be filled, walk with the Spirit. And so, knowing that is that we have access to the Spirit of God, because this is why this is important. Though we are sealed with the Spirit, Paul commands us to be filled with the Spirit. So, so, what that means is we always have the Holy Spirit, but at the same time, as my pastor friend used to always tell me, Ryan, we leak. We need more of the Spirit of God. Because if that's not true, then this command makes no sense. If he's saying, be filled, wait, are we already filled? Is there a second class of Christian that I don't know about? No, 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 no. We already have the Spirit of God, but you need to continually, that's the Greek, continually be filled with the Spirit of God that gives you love, joy, peace, self-control, perseverance, kindness, goodness. That we should seek it every single day because it's available to us. So if you are a believer in Christ, please come and take communion. We'd love for you to celebrate with us. Uh, there'll be two uh, lines up in the front. If you have any kind of allergies, uh, gluten-free bread, nut-free bread there in the middle, please feel free to take that. And if you're not a believer, we have some prayers in the uh, city life. We'd love for you to think on that and, uh, and, and, and reflect on that. If you'd like to talk more about what it means to follow Christ and, and why it matters so much to us, come talk with me or one of our elders. We'd love to chat with you or pray with you. So with that, we've gone a little long. Let's pray.